Uh, good morning. Let's start looking at Romans 12, shall we? We're looking at Romans 12 today. We've, we've spent a lot of time in Romans. It's a lot. We're getting there. We're getting close to the end. But Romans 12 is just one of those pivotal books. It's beautiful, pivotal chapters. It's beautiful, but we're only doing two verses today. We're doing chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the most famous of uh, chapter 12, and you'll know it when you read it. But what we have to understand is that we begin with the, un, with, with the ideology that this is a call to commitment that Paul is making for us. He's, he's saying, listen, you got to respond to the revelation of God that you've seen in these previous chapters. You have to. Something has to change. And so it starts out like this, Romans 12:1. And so, of course, looking at everything before, brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. And he, the, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And now this is important, right? He's transitioning from doctrine to life. Paul was a good preacher. I mean, we've all heard sermons that are just really phenomenal, but you don't know what to do with it afterwards. You walk away going, well, that's an interesting point of doctrine, but I don't know how to incorporate this into my life. Paul's not going to leave us there. Paul's had this deep doctrinal conversation, this deep understanding of soteriology and the Holy Spirit and how all this works. And then in 12, he pivots and he says, listen, it's time for you to live this. This is practical. There's a lot going on here. But what Paul understood is what we all understand, which is simply that if it it doesn't apply, it doesn't matter. I'll say it again. If it doesn't apply to your life, if you cannot incorporate these truths into your life and find a way to live differently, more powerfully, more abundantly within the context of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can say you have all the truth in the world, but if it doesn't change and it doesn't apply to the way that you live your life, it doesn't matter what you believe. Right now, that pushes back on conventional wisdom and especially pushes back on the idea that we have the truth. Because I would argue that if your truth is not lived, I don't care what you believe. I just, it just doesn't matter to me. You can believe everything perfectly, but if it doesn't transform your life, then I'm not sure what good it is. And I want to take one second just to, to recognize a, parent, a parenthesis here. Paul says, um, and so, and in our translation, in the New Living Translation, it says brothers and sisters. Okay, now if you read the King James Version, if you read some of the other versions, it will not say brothers and sisters, it will just say brothers. Let me explain to you something. If we do not update language, we lose the intent that Paul had. When Paul says brothers, he's speaking from an, from an kind of anthropos point of view. He's saying humans, all of you, everybody is included in this, and this is what he always means. So changing that language from just brothers to brothers and sisters, in, it, it, continues his intention that this is for everyone because we have other places where Paul says there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no man, there's no woman, there's no slave, there's no master. We're all the same. So if we don't change the language, we lose the intent. And there are some people who are like, listen, the way it is in the King James Version, if it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. I'm gonna let that sit for a little bit. <laughs> Paul didn't read the King James Version. Paul read in a different language. We can talk later if you don't understand that. 
But the important part is this. This is the important part, that it is for everyone who he's been talking to. And it is literally a call to action. You have to make a, a, a decisive commitment at some point. You have to take action on these truths. Change to be transformed. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And it comes from the foundation of the teachings in chapter 1, verses, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 11. Therefore, there's a connection to what's come before, right? These are the means whereby the actions can be carried out. If we didn't have those, we wouldn't know what to do. And if, if they, are, they should be motivation for those things as well. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I had kind of gotten into an unhealthy state. We wanted something to really motivate us and move us towards getting healthy. And you know, it's hard to do. Getting a little older, you know, your bodies don't respond quite as quickly. Um, and so my wife said, hey, let's watch this movie. It's called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. Let's get the popcorn. Um, so we watch this movie. This movie is about a guy who juices for like 90 days. And by juice, I mean, he just juices vegetables. And, and, but I'll tell you what, it was motivating to watch him lose weight, to watch him get rid of some of the health issues he was having. It was pretty powerful. And so we did it. We didn't do it for 90 days, because that's crazy people. Um, we did it for like 20 days, which was still kind of crazy. But it jump-started our health. Anything, anytime you're going to make a transition, anytime you're going to make a transition, there's going to be something that motivates you. And the teaching in 1 through 11 should motivate us. And Paul is urging us, right? He's, it's an exhortation. It's not a demand. He's not saying you have to do this, but he's pleading that we would put these truths into action because he understands it is an expression of grace. It is because of grace. You see, grace is the means and the motivation. It is based on the mercies of God, which have been before us in the previous chapters and personified in Jesus. It's evident in the lives of the Christian and a result of his grace and a manifestation of his mercy, and it is pleasing to God. Last week, we talked about the idea that we, all, we do all this for the glory of God, and this is for the glory of God as well. In fact, what he's talking about, and other translations say it this way, this is your spiritual act of worship, it says, right? Not just holy and pleasing, but this is your spiritual act of worship. When we think about worship, we have a tendency to think about worship uh, services or praise and worship music, that sort of thing. Paul is blowing us out of the water with this. He's saying, listen, it's bigger than that. It's much more than just an act of singing. It's much more powerful than that. It is how we live our lives every single day that become a spiritual act of worship. It is actually that you live with a worship mindset, right? Because we have a tendency to visit worship, like, oh, okay, a worship song. Oh, the song starts and we're like, oh, Relentless Love, I love that song, right? And before that it was Oceans and we love that song. And then before that it was, who knows what it was. And eventually it was, Lord, I lift your name on high, but we don't sing that anymore because that was written in 1976 and it's time. We can lay it to rest. Um, but, but, you know, we, so we go and like, if worship lasts for longer than three and a half minutes, Avenus, we get a little nervous, right? Like if we sing the song three times, we're like, oh, let's go, don't go crazy, right? If you come from a charismatic background, nine or 10 minutes, you're good, right? They stop and you're like, why'd you stop? Avenus, we're like, why'd you do that chorus again? <laughs> like the song's too long. It just repeats itself too many times. I'm uncomfortable. That's why we don't have like guitar solos in the middle of a song. You Avenus don't know what to do. Do we, just, do we just stand here? How come he gets to play? I don't know what to do. I'd love to see one of you guys just one time when the solo happens go. 
Because you know you do that when you go to other concerts. A bunch of you went to a Def Leppard concert the other night. I'm looking at you guys. Yeah, and I know, I can see Ed. Ah, you know he was, huh? You, his kids are like, seriously, Dad, what happened? So listen, listen, it's okay, but worship is not just music. Clearly, worship is something more. And by the way, every time you get involved in worship, you gotta understand, it is a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. If you give yourself into worship, even if it's just in singing, you have to sacrifice your self-awareness. And you guys don't like to do that. A lot of you are like nervous someone's looking at you. Some of you don't care. And you're the ones I like to watch because you're good times, right? Because you're involved in the worship. You're sacrificing that self-awareness. Anytime we worship, and if worship is our life, then we understand that it's a sacrificial life. This one that we recognize that our death has happened to the things of this world and we are being transformed, but we have to be willing to lose to gain. And we do this because a divine revelation, like we saw in chapters one through 11, always require a response. And this, this response that we have been given is a reasonable response because Paul is actually broadening the concept of worship because he understands that those who are worshiping and they come from a pagan background understand what worshiping with your whole life is because they worship particularly with their bodies, right? It, this is a pushback on pagan worship. It's a reasonable response and was in contrast to the pagan worship that was happening, often mindless, drunk, and often immoral. This was certainly the case in Corinth at the time. Pagan worship invoked the body, and so does Christian worship, but in a deeply different way because it is a much greater commitment. It is not go, go to a place, go to a temple where you get drunk and lose yourself. It is a constant commitment to life so that your life is holy and acceptable to God. Again, it's a rational and reasoned and, and beautiful response to the grace of God. But in the midst of this, Paul is calling for change. And all of this requires change in the way we view the world, take in what the world offers and expresses to us in the world. It's really our response to how we live in culture. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Romans 12, 2 says this, don't copy the behavior and custom of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Again, he's talking about trans transformation and how does this happen? Now, it's, it's pretty important that we take a look at what God can transform and, and, and where we live. See, the world that we live in is a world of culture and there's a culture that has grown. We all live in culture. Some have subsets of cultures and that sort of thing. But there was a guy named, and it, I, I got it wrong in the first, and it's a, a common mistake, uh, a guy by the name of Richard Niebuhr, not Reinhold Niebuhr, he was someone else. Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture. And Niebuhr's book puts the ongoing and enduring problem of Christ and culture squarely into our laps. And he argues that there's five responses that a Christian can have to culture. We'll go through them quite quickly. The first one is that Christ is against culture, right? He just, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. These are people who believe that, believe that A, Christ has no impact on culture. B, culture's bad. We need to get away from culture. This is kind of the run to the hills group, right? Monastics did this kind of stuff. There's nothing good in culture. We need to get away from it, right? We can never separate ourselves from the world of sin, so we have to get away from it even physically. 
And the problem with this is that there's kind of a dualism that happens here, kind of a, a platonic dualism, right? The idea that the world is bad and, and spiritual things are good and that's it and they don't mix and they don't meet and you can take that to a logical extreme that can get kind of strange and weird and we all know those people, right? It's all right. Um, so that's one, one way. And by the way, Richard Niebuhr never goes, oh, it's this. This is the way you should deal with it. I think that some are better than others, but he never says that in his book. He kind of just puts it out there for us. Secondly, um, is Christ of culture, right? Not Christ, um, this is not the, the Messiah of the society, really. There's no tension between Christ and the world. The good news about this is that, you know, these people attach themselves to the best society has to offer and can make an impact, which is great. The problem with it is that it's a distortion of Christ when we see their intention to make Christ conform to the best of society. Even the best of society is not as good as the worst of Christ, if we can even say that, right? So that becomes a problem because the Christ of culture um, is just uh, the best expression of us. And we believe that he's something significantly different than that. Then he talks about Christ being above culture, right? Not the Christ versus culture, but the battle between God and man, holy versus sinful. Culture is not necessarily good or bad, but Christ doesn't really have anything to do with it. You know, Christ as a part of culture, but yet he's kind of outside of culture. He becomes sort of the moral law for society. The problem with this is that we can often, and we do often, institutionalize what we think Christ is, and then our institutions cease to kind of have an impact on culture right? So Christ above culture. Then he talks about Christ and culture and paradox. And this is one I think makes some sense. It's similar to what we just talked about, but, but it holds together a loyalty to Christ and a responsibility to culture, which is good. And they understand that like a conflict exists between the two. This is a probably pretty biblical view of the tension. We live in culture, but we're not supposed to be of the culture, but it's a paradox really under grace yet we're still sinning, right? The position becomes kind of static. We don't know what to do. And we just assume that this is going to be the problem forever. And that, you know, Christ and culture will always be held in paradox and there will always be tension between it. And that's just the way we're going to live. And so that's it. But there's a static nature to that. There's this idea that, well, we're never going to fix it. So there's not really much we can do. So let's just live in the tension. Right? And then his fifth one, uh, the one I have a tendency to like a little bit more is uh, Christ transforming culture right? Christ transforms culture. And this is a hopeful view towards culture. It doesn't say that all of it is bad, but it's a hopeful view that culture perhaps can change. It believes in the power of Christ to change something. We work in culture for its betterment because God had some hand in human creativity in the way that culture came out. This defeats sin, not by retreating or simply fighting, but by transforming it with our eyes fixed on Jesus which I think makes a lot of sense. We believe that culture can be changed. We believe that we won't be transformed by culture, but we will transform culture through the power of Christ. Now, this is really important. I want you to know why this is important because, I mean, we do church a certain way, right? And one of the criticisms is certainly gonna be like, oh, Crosswalk, you guys are crazy. You're just bringing the world into the church. I don't think that that's true, but yeah, our music's loud, right? Yeah, we've got lights and apparently we have haze. We had that too today, um, right? And, and I understand people are like, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't feel normal. That's true. Just so you know, I've been doing this long enough that when I go to a regular church, um, I'm like, this doesn't feel normal. 
what's happening here? Um, and and I, 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 think, I think they're all valid expressions of faith. But you see, what's happened in my life is that Christ has, con- has transformed this kind of stuff into something that I do specifically for Christ. See, when I started playing music, I wasn't playing music in church. I was playing music in clubs. I was playing music all over the place. And, um, and when I gave it away, to God and I got called to be a minister, I was like, well, I guess I'm never playing music again. I guess I'm never involved in this kind of thing that makes some sense to me. All right, I'll give it away. I thought like the rest of my life was, um, you know, shall we gather at the river? I thought that's what it was, <laughs> which is a great song, but I don't want to sing it. Um, and, and no, I should, that, that's mean. I, it's fine. The, the thing was, I just, like, I was, I was kind of alienating myself from the culture that made sense to me. And I remember going and, and meeting some guys and beginning to play music and it not quite sounding like church music and getting a lot of criticism and stuff, but it made so much sense to me. And so like this, what we do here, for me, this is church. This is church. I don't think about being in a club playing music. I think about this because Christ transforms culture. So we ask the question, what can Christ transform, right? Which is a powerful question. What can Christ transform? Well, we know that he can transform even even a device of torture to be the symbol of salvation for the world. That's the cross, right? Of course, Christ can change one of the most hideous things in ancient history to become one of the most powerful and recognizable um, harbingers of what salvation is. So I want to ask the question again, but I want to ask it in a different way. Rather than saying, what can Christ transform? Let's ask it this way. What can't Christ transform? Is there something that he absolutely cannot change? Is there something that he cannot work with? I mean, we believe that Christ can transform anyone. We believe that he can transform us, even the most wretched of us, even the most, when we are the most wretched we've ever been, we believe Christ can transform that. What can't Christ transform? Christ can only trans, cannot transform those things which don't want to be transformed. And this is why Paul says, listen, I urge you guys to allow God to be the transformation in your life. But the problem with transformation is always that transformation takes sacrifice. Nothing transforms without its due price. You want to go on a diet? You're not going to be able to eat in and out. That's not true. You can still eat in and out. Just be careful. What kind of sacrifice does it take to transform culture? It takes looking at things in a different way, keeping a different focus, uh, a Jesus focus on the way that we view culture. So what is culture exactly? There's at least five different points and expressions of culture. And again, we'll go through them quite quickly. The first one is our business culture, right? The business world, the marketplace that we say. Not most of you, most of you don't work for church. And so that means you're working outside of, a, of faith-based orientation. Like my job, I get to think about this stuff all the time. But most of you go into a different world and have to work in that world. So how does Christ transform that world for you and through you? How does, how does the marketplace become more Christ-like? I think one of the simple ways is that you keep your promises, right? You don't overpromise. You, you give a client exactly what they're asking for. You do it with integrity. You do it on time. And we can have conversations about this again and again. Every once in a while, because I, I do some work with healthcare, every once in a while people go, this is not a mission-driven place because they fire people. That's, I'm not sure that's what we're talking about when we talk about business because sometimes that has to happen, right? And sometimes that actually happen, has to happen so the place can be transformed. 
right? And sometimes there's just a fiscal reality to that. So I think you need to think about that differently. Like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time on each of these. I'm just going to give you a few points. The second part of culture that is really an important part of culture is family. How family is expressed in our culture, right? What is a Christ-transformed family? How is Christ transforming these families that we've been given to, to care for? And what does a Christ-transformed family look like? Does it look a certain way or can it look like however they end up and then God works with what he's been given? I think that's really important because family is a driving force within culture. And so we need to be doing as much as we can to continue that becoming a center of where Christ is expressed. Family is important in culture and God can transform that as well. How about government? Oh, I know that's dangerous to talk about. Right? What does it mean to have a Christ-transformed government? I remember being in San Diego and I got this Christian newspaper that came out and, um, and it had a, a voting list. And like, these are Christians, so you'll vote for them. And I didn't agree with everything that these people stood for. And I was like, I actually had a moment of like, oh, can, how, how does that work? Am I supposed to just be in lockstep because this is what somebody else has decided? I think that when we talk about how Christ transforms government, it means that we have a deep freedom of conscience to vote for the people who recognize the values that we see in our life and want to see expressed. We know we're not all going to agree, right? I don't think this is about a party. I think this is about a principle of what Christ expresses. And some of you think one party has it. Some of you think the other party has it. Probably never going to agree on that. So let's maybe not talk about that too much today. Um, <laughs> see how nervous I am? Um, but I think that the freedom to choose with your conscience is really important and we need to continue to strive. And, I, and let me encourage you this way. If you don't see Christ values being expressed in culture, then get, or in government, get involved, right? Get involved to help that happen. I think that's important, right? As Christians, we need to be a part of that. Let's say, let's talk about education for a moment. How does Christ transform education? In the Seventh-day Adventist church, we've got this long legacy of Christian education. Our schools are not doing as well as they used to do. Um, it's a lot harder than it used to be. It's very expensive. We understand that. So when we talk about education, are we just talking about setting up our own institutions that take people out of the world? Or do we need to figure out how we can help transform the education that our kids are getting in the public school system as well? Right? That's important as well because we can't all put our kids in Christian education. And sometimes Christian education doesn't help create better Christians, depending on the culture that's happening within those as well. So we should have to probably own that as well. And then I think the last part of culture that probably could, and we could spend so much time on each one of those, but arts and entertainment, right? How do we transform arts and entertainment to, to recognize those Christ values that are really important? And how do we do it without fear? I mean, how many times, I don't know if it still happens, but I remember growing up and people would come into our school and be like, burn all your DVDs. And we get all super, ah. well, first it was cassettes. And those, when you burned, like smelled horrible. Um, <laughs> and then you'd burn DVDs and you weren't really sure if they would burn or not. So you got to burn a bunch of other stuff along with it, you know? Um, but it seems like way too much plastic to be burning anyway. Um, but I remember having those conversations and thinking, oh man, my Terrence Trent Darby CD. That's horrible. Like four of you got that. I love it. <laughs> The rest of you are like, what? Like, I wasn't listening to Black Sabbath. That one's easy. You're like, well, that's probably bad. Um, but Terrence Trent Darby, give me love, wishing well, kiss and tell. Crocodile tears. I don't know if it's great. It probably should have been burned just because it wasn't great music, but um, <laughs> sorry. No, how, how do we not retreat, not run away from fear, but how do we add 
to the cultural conversation that's happening between arts and entertainment. I think the way that we do that is by being the most creative because we have a God who's the most creative. We come up with better products. We come up with better songs. We come up with better books. We come out with better paintings and better portraits and better expressions of what humanity is so that people might recognize who Christ is. And then this is the last one. And I got to tell you, sometimes I don't know. How does Christ transform religion? And the reason why this is important is because we're at a crossroads in the Seventh-day Adventist church, right? What happened last week was a tough week for us. If you don't know, praise God. But if you do know, you do know that the GC made a vote very much against who we are and who we can accept into the fellowship of faith. And, 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 and just for the record, this is not about women's ordination, although that's obviously a part of it. What this is about is what keeps us unified and what doesn't. And, um, and so how does Christ come in and inform these conversations? This is one of the reasons why we felt like the one project was needed. Because, because what we would like to do is we would like to raise the level of conversation above ecclesiology, above our polity and policy. And we want to raise it up to a conversation about Jesus. Right? Because, because that is the only thing that unifies us. That is the only thing that will transcend the differences that we have. And that is the only thing that we can focus on that will not let us down. Amen. So how, how do you think about culture and behavior and about Christ's place in all of it is a deep question. And let's just jump to the message translation. I love what Eugene Peterson writes when he writes chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And if you know who Eugene Peterson is, he's the guy who did the paraphrase, the Message Bible, and it's really powerful. And Eugene is not doing well. He's quite old and he's, he's failing, so he's not gonna be with us too much longer, it seems. But, um, but this is the gift that he gave us in his translation, if you could move to the Message translation. It says, don't, it's the next one. It's the next one. <laughs> it's not fair that I throw this on, on Wes. Wes, keep going, there we go, thank you. Nope, that's not it. It's at the very end of it. Sorry. It says this. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture. It's actually the one before that. <laughs> it's not fair. It's my fault. I'm jumping around. So here's what I want you to do. And I love this. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Doesn't forget that part. Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and waking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. And then he says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And this is what we're called to today. That we become Christians who transform society because it can't help but recognize that God is in us. Because our lives are living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's not perfection, friends. I'm not saying we can never make mistakes. I'm saying when we make them, we own them and we're transparent about them. And we apologize and we move forward in the goodwill that people will give us when they see Christ in us. 
and the goodwill that we give them when we know that they're loved by God as well. Not excluding anyone, but welcoming everyone into the family of Christ. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your love for all of us is overwhelming. Thank you. Lord, may we, you be with this church as we celebrate 15 years. It's nothing in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's a, not even a blink of your eye, but Lord, for us, 15 years of learning to love well, Lord, you're sending us on a trajectory. You're taking us somewhere. So Lord, may we listen to you. May we respond to it immediately. And Lord, may we have a wonderful time today as we worship, as we celebrate, as we eat corn dogs and street tacos and elotes later on. Lord, thank you for all of it. We're just so excited. So accept our specific act of worship as we sing this final song and give ourselves to you again. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen.